This is a HeadGum Podcast. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Jesus music. The Jesus music. Wow. I mean, music is a gift, right? Music is something of him that he gave to us that we've used for things that are not him. He gave us music and all the notes in the scale. In the sin of man, we've made things like Blueberry Hill. We've made things like The Twist. And we've made things even like WAP. Three songs that are very similar to each other. And it's time to take it back. It's time to be musicians like the way King David was a musician, where he was dancing naked in the streets with his harp, wagging his little butt out there for the glory of God. So let's just, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I'd close like the Ides of March. Just go around and if there's something on our hearts, something on our minds, a prayer we have about music or for music, the music that we want to make, maybe that's not literal music. Maybe that's conversation. Maybe that's music to the Lord, a delight to Him. Let's just lift it up to God. Caroline, we'll start with you and I'll close this out. Today, I am desperately praying to Christ, uh, to anybody who will listen up there, uh, that as I get older, I do not start to abuse my head by wearing several kinds of weird hats, as seems to be the course of action that some people, like me, who are famous, uh, end up taking in their last, you know, third of life. Mm. Um, may my head remain bare before I put nary a dusty ugly hat on my head (laughs) yes god we know that you love a bare head (laughs) and even a bald head seems to be very holy to you given most of the leadership of your church preferred preferred country you love how many hairs are how many how much easier it is to count those hairs on the bald head stop wasting god's time by growing too much hair uh, so yeah, in that spirit of humility, uh, I ask that, yeah, I, w- I would not be destined for hat wearing in my lifetime. <laughs> yes, Thank Father, you. we'd lift that up to you. Amen. If anyone else has any other prayers on their hearts right now, they want to lift up, now's the time. God, I just thank you so much for the word just. Because Mm. without the word just, I don't know how I would pray. So thank you for the word just. Mm. Amen. Lord Almighty. Mm. Amen. God, we just want to pray you for just. We 
just come before you just as humility. Um, and you, we know that you are just a just God and you love justice. Except for social justice, that's a real issue in this country, but all other kinds of justice we know you love. The store justice. That's my right. My girls know. Uh, Justice Smith, the actor uh, who was in a movie I saw called The Voyeurs, which was pretty good. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The notorious RBG. And all of God's people said, Ruth Conda forever. Ruth Conda forever. <laughs> Ruth Conda. <laughs> Amen. Amen. And the tea is like yuck hard. Consider the source. Hey. God, consider the source. It's me. I'm a fan of my mom. Throw a dart at a song. It's probably about a school shooting. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Good Christian Fun. Oh my God. I'm Kevin. I'm ashamed. (laughs) I'm Caroline. Uh, It's been a while since we've had a good Caroline job. We're here to have good Christian fun. That was from our episode uh, that we did with our friend Steven Hernandez. We were talking about Five Iron Frenzy songs, one of which was about Columbine. I uh, inaccurately said it was the song uh, World Without an End, but it was actually Every New Day. So we were talking about like which song was about the school shooting, (laughs) which then uh, inspired Caroline to give her pithy little Algonquin table retort of throw a dart and every (laughs) box of us. Dorothy Parker witch- wishes. She witches. She uh, witches. Good, good Christian fun is the pockets where we talk about Christian <laughs> pop culture. The Jesus music, the Jesus movies, the Jesus entertainment made for and made by Christians. But we're not here to make fun of you or to make you go to church. We're just here to have fun, baby. Just a little bit of fun. Caroline, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, it was a little warm today. I'm feeling a, uh, the last gasping death rattle of summer, I think. <laughs> Uh, not fun. Not a fun version of summer, I'd say. Uh, but otherwise, I'm doing pretty good. How about you, Kev? I'm so ready for summer to be over. <laughs> <laughs> Me personally. Uh, as we were talking before we got on mic and on the recording, it's our first Zoomy in a while. So we're here to recapture the glory days of this podcast, like mid-2020, when we were really firing on all sil- cylinders of the, who knows what the rest of our lives is going to be. It's just, we're in the throes of 2020 technology again. These two beautiful faces I see before me on the screen. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're chilling and we're thrilling and we're hanging out. Uh, and today, I woke up at, at 6.30 a.m. because the Lord oh. loves a morning bird, an early bird. <laughs> he loves a morning bird. Have you guys been watching <laughs> The Morning Bird on Apple TV Plus? <laughs> it's really good with Reese Witherspoon and some other people. Oh, and a crow. Uh, but listen, we Wait, got... what did you do with your early morning? Oh, I took my little boy on a walk, and then Aww. I hit... Uh, I joined my community early, Peloton. I joined Peloton early uh, and, and got on mm-hmm. for Let's go, ride. Peloton. Let's go, Peloton. Mm-hmm. Uh, should we say, like, should we start addressing... Because I know we struggle with, like, what what are the listeners called? Are they, like, GCFers? Are they the little fundies? What are they? Should we just say, let's go, podcast? Like, hey, podcast, we love you. <laughs> we hear you. We're listening to you. Yes. 
Okay, I think it's settled then. We got a huge episode today, Caroline. We're talking about uh, a movie that, as of this uh, coming out, is coming out in two days. This movie drops on October the 1st, and it's a movie called The Jesus wow. Music. This is what we call a scoop right here. Yeah, this is just a publicist was nice to us and gave us a screener, which was very cool. <laughs> is there some sort of, uh, let me know if I'm getting the lingo correct here, but embargo on the cartons of criticism we're about to dump on this movie? I'm sure there is, Are and I don't know when it is. I don't <laughs> know when the embargo is. So we're doing a Hail Mary. All right, their fault for not making it clear. I'm hoping it's two days before the movie comes out on October 1st, but we cannot do this alone. We're going to need a very, very special guest to help us out. Friends and folks, he's an aspiring theologian, a young John Piper in the making. Just kidding. You can check out his podcast, People's Theology. Give it the hell up for Mason Minigan! Woo! Snappity, tappity, snappity, tappity, bappity, dappity, do. Hello, Mason. Wow. That was like a Michael W. Smith type of introduction. Yeah, well, we try. You know, we really, really try on this show. A hyper introduction. I do want to remind the listener that, you know, because this is the song Sing Your Praise to the Lord from, from Amy Grant from the H to H album. It's composed by Rich Mullins, of course, including that beautiful uh, piano intro that's also a concerto, classical music of some sort. When we did the intro for her on this podcast, she said... That was the best intro I've gotten, dot, 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 in 10 years. <laughs> so she did qualify by like, someone was better at this 10 years ago, but it's been a long time. That kills me. And why would she remember something from 10 years ago? I, I got to know. know what it was. Was it like a, she was at a county fair or something? Was she I, on a Ferris wheel? Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. County <laughs> fair. <laughs> I love county fairs. That's not a dig on them. That's a pro fair. Oh my gosh. Anyway. Uh I don't if I remember something from 10 years ago, it's high school, and I don't re- want to remember that. So yeah. I don't want to remember something 10 years ago. <laughs> exactly. I know. I, oh man, most of my memories, honestly, from 10 years ago are so inflected, Caroline, by our old church, by Reality mm. LA. That was mm. the majority of my social life. So most of it is uh, complicated <laughs> at best uh, and compromised. Is it a lot of just small bathroom walls? <laughs> Caroline in the middle of a no, meeting or now it's not the time now you just not- flash back <laughs> were you facing the toilet or facing okay. away from the toilet Mason thank you so much for doing the show today man uh, <laughs> for those that may not be familiar with Mason's work I'll go in, ahead and say this didn't put this in the in the intro but as far as people from our background one of the best follows on Twitter uh, oh. one of the best people to follow for the bits for the tweets where uh, it does make me say, mm, really should have cornered this niche because he's doing tweets that I should be doing. <laughs> very specific to evangelical culture. Very, very funny stuff. Well, that's high praise. You are the one of the people where when I think of cornering evangelical culture, you're the person, Kevin. And so it's very high praise that you even think that there are times where I beat you to the punch. Oh, that's so <laughs> nice. Thank you, sir. I, I, we I, get w- praise from these two corners going back and forth. I'm so happy. <laughs> <laughs> Caroline, you want to jump in here? <laughs> uh, get on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, 
Caroline, just to, to you know, share with you, and I, I do encourage the listener to check this out too. He's got tweets like me vaccinated showing up to church. <laughs> it's just an old oh, man. Renaissance painting of it's Nicki Minaj's cousin right yeah, there. Yeah, that's the research. I think Mason's <laughs> tweets are the research that Nicki Minaj did. Oh man. That's right. Well, Mason, we would love to know about your history with faith and evangelical culture. Uh, did you grow up with it? Is it something that was always a part of your life? Oh, that's such a, well, let me just put it this way. Mm -hmm. I did grow up with it and I was like in the epicenter of it, at least from my perspective of it. Uh, I'll just put it this way. My parents met going to newsboys concerts. Oh, wow. Like that's the dates that they went on when they were courting. Okay. That's so nice. (laughs) That that is that is how I, I'm sure as a as a zygote mm-hmm. I wasn't existing yet. Yeah. But pre zygote, my parents were were just sort of you know creating their relationship in Newsboys concerts, and this was like Newsboys when they would have like the little contraption where the where the drummer would have this thing that would go out on stage. Oh, that's right. With his drum set, Very familiar. The rotating. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. yeah. And it, yeah. it, it, they've continued to this day to utilize. Oh yeah, that, okay, that boy, great. Well, well, I haven't yeah. seen Newsboys for like fifteen years, so well, I wouldn't we know, haven't but... seen them Big in three. <laughs> Big mistake, huge. <laughs> you gotta. But this would have been like Peter Fuller era yeah, of Newsboys. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow, wow. So the uh, influence that must have had on you. Yeah. N- yeah. Needless to say, yeah, P- Peter Fuller probably was the music that I was conceived. With. Oh my gosh. Oh, I hate to be I hate to be pedantic. I, I believe his name is Peter Furler. And I just in case he is your godfather, I, I do want to make sure we get that right. <laughs> I, I, I grew up in South Dakota, so the South Dakota education might be coming upon me it's right now. It's your accent. That's fair. Yeah, it is, it's an accent. <laughs> That's thing. right. Peter Furler, who we, may we never forget, is cousins with Sia. Uh yeah. is absolutely ask me how I say bag and ask me how I say hot dish. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. <gasps> oh, great. Okay, so your parents met at a Newsboys concert. You were probably conceived under uh, a mix, not even tape, a mix eight track of... Uh, <laughs> probably Breakfast in Hell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in 1995, you were conceived. <laughs> Many ships launched to Breakfast in Hell. <laughs> oh, gracious. Okay, so uh, born and raised in the church, it sounds like. Needless to say, yes. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I grew up with all of that. Uh, I grew up listening. I I actually was an only child for the first six years of my life. And so every time that my parents and I would go on like a little road trip, there for sure was VeggieTales going on. So I had every VeggieTales song memorized, Mm -hmm. watched all the movies. I was deeply entrenched in it. And then... I was too cool for my parents. I was too cool for Newsboys. I was too cool for Audio and Adrenaline. So probably around the time that I was like, I don't know, 11 or 12 years old, I moved on to Tooth and Nail. And so I really got into like Switchfoot, Reliant K, Thousand Foot Crutch, Skillet, like all the like kind of alternative Christian music. Uh, But anyway, yeah, I grew up like in the very like CCM world and then like immediately moved on to like all the alternative Christian yeah, stuff. Yeah, like Page and of the Line very stuff. deeply entrenched yeah. in it for a while. Mm-hmm. 
I had my John Piper phase as well, very much so. Oh my gosh, I know. It's so funny to think about young men's John Piper phase where I had one so much so that uh, as a gift to my grandfather, I bought him a John Piper book and I'm sure, and I sent it to him via Amazon. Thank you, Daddy Bezos. (laughs) And when I asked him like, how'd you like it? He was like, "Uh, it was okay, I guess. Because I was like, because he read a lot. But like John Piper's writing style is also so... I don't even know how to put it. Obtuse. It is so <laughs> grandiose and at the same time just like impenetrable in a lot of ways. <laughs> it's not an invitation to understanding. I'll say that. So shouts out to my grandfather. So every young man, every young Christian man goes from diapers to pipers to striping. Gripers? Stripers. Stripers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, at some point. Okay. I, and then, like faith-wise, Mason was was your faith? I, I don't know what flavor of evangelical you were. Uh, like, was it charismatic or Pentecostal? Like anything like that? It, it felt like it kind of had everything. I grew up in like I actually technically grew up United Methodist, but it was like the most conservative evangelical, non-denominational. Fow Baptist type of United Methodist uh-huh. church that it could have been. Uh, we were our like relationship with the other United Methodist church. I grew up in a small little town in in South Dakota, and the other United Methodist church. We had less of a relationship with with them than we did with the Baptist church. Like we just had, mm-hmm. we were very much like in the Baptist flavor of Christianity. Mm-hmm. With that said though, like my youth pastor was super charismatic, came from the charismatic background. And we would go on these mission trips to the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. And we would go to this Assemblies of God church and do mission trip work out there. And so that was kind of my first introduction to the Pentecostal and very charismatic world. And it was a very, I mean, it's literally in the middle of a reservation in South Dakota. So it was super rural. It wasn't like the big, grandiose type of Mm -hmm. AG churches. It was a very like rural Pentecostal church. And that was like my first introduction to speaking in tongues and exercising demons. Did you like (laughs) it? And so, you know, I actually, the very first, literally like within hours of me getting there all of a sudden some guy like starts convulsing and they start doing an exorcism and i'm like all right i guess this is what we're doing now and this is going to be my experience so they didn't even like wean us into it they just were (laughs) like all right here we go we're 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 full right into it here's a demon right there Okay. And yeah. So, so yeah. Again. So oh that was kind of like one of my most formative experiences going to that church over a number of years on these mission trips. And so that was my introduction to the like more pe- Pentecostal charismatic world. And then I really got into my John Piper phase and then went to a college that was a reform school that was re- actually it was the town that Kevin DeYoung used to pastor in. And so it was a very like gospel coalition reform type of evangelicalism. So I went from like the more Arminian Francis Chan route to very mm. Pentecostal to even the like more John Piper, John MacArthur, Kevin DeYoung, Gospel Coalition, Evangelicalism. So I feel like I got kind of like all three big hitters (laughs) of evangelicalism growing up. The flavors, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Did Tim Keller get in there at all? Any of his stuff? You know, I'm sure he snuck in there a few times, but not to the degree that 
someone like John Piper or John sure, MacArthur sure, did. Sure, sure, sure. But he was definitely probably in the mix at some point. Mm-hmm. I guess. And so, and so what was happening with your faith at the time? Was it evolving? Was it something that you were still feeling was useful or what was yeah. Yeah, so when I was in, actually, let me back up. When I was in high school, I started to really start to question a lot of things about my faith, not only from like a political side of things, but also just culturally, like how Christianity or the type of Christianity I'd grown up in was relating to culture. I remember thinking like, can I listen to a band like Radiohead? Is that allowed? Like those sort of questions started happening when I was in high school. And then I brought a lot of those questions to my college. And like I mentioned, my college was a reform school. Most of the people involved in that world were very much like the evangelical reformed world. However, I was a youth ministry major. And so I was in the religion department and that religion department just so happened to be quite liberal. Mm-hmm. And oh. so I was introduced to people like Rob Bell and Nadia Boltz-Weber and Brian McLaren and all these different types of people who are thinking about Christianity in a lot, in very different ways. The fun ones. Than what, we call yeah, those the, yeah, fun the fun ones. ones. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, officially. Yeah, uh-huh. the fun Christianities. <laughs> and that kind of changed everything for me. So I had all these questions, but Literally thought prior to college, I thought Joel Olstein was a like a liberal. And so that was like how deeply entrenched I was. So I thought like going into college, I'm like, well, there's no like liberal. That's not a thing that exists. I can't bring these questions to my school at all. And then all of a sudden, I start to encounter people like Rob Bell and Nadia Boltzweber and Brian McLaren. I'm like, okay, maybe Joel Osteen isn't a liberal Christian. And maybe there are different ways of thinking about Christianity. And that kind of like set me on a whole trajectory where I was really enamored by it. And even though, you know, you get a lot of people who maybe are encounter a lot of those people and they end up leaving Christianity, it made me want to be even more Christian after I encountered a lot of those those folks. Mm-hmm. And so I end up in seminary and I got my master of divinity and now I'm doing a master of arts and theology. So I'm still like deeply entrenched in the Christian world because I was so fascinated by why people like Nadia Boltzweber and Rob Bell and all those different people would think about their faith in that way. And I just have do- like I've dove down deeply into that kind of uh, way of thinking about Christianity. Yeah, I mean, what does one do with the Masters of Divinity, you said, in in arts and theology? Yeah, so uh, so there are two separate degrees. I have yeah. my Master of Divinity, which is, you know, the sort of more pastoral type of degree that, you know, people who want to become a pastor or a mm-hmm. chaplain end up getting. And then a Master of Arts and Theology is a very nerdy academic degree. So mm-hmm. people who end up usually going on to do like a PhD in theology usually do a Master of Arts in Theology prior uh, and it just so happened and it worked out for me to do both of them. And so that's what I'm doing. And so, yeah, I've got the more practical side of things. So if you need to hire me for a church, I got that. Yeah. And if you're <laughs> like, you know what? I could use like a really nerdy person to think about this kind of shit. I can do that too. He, he, you get you a master's of divinity who can do both. That's when right. I, hear I the mastered the divine. And write a, be- a best-selling theology <laughs> book. <Yes. laughs> why, why am I so retrograde that when I hear the word chaplain, I only think of a guy in a collar coming to pray over a soldier who's dying. I only think of dying soldiers in war hospitals. Why is that? I know chaplains That's are That's a you problem, things. Kevin. That might be a you <laughs> it problem. It is. I don't know why I have such a narrow view of it. I don't get it. 
Um, I love Joel Osteen kind of being a a guide, you know, depending on how liberal you think Joel is, it shows you where you are on the map, you know? <laughs> He's kind of a That's North right. Star. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have a question that. for you since you're, you're deep, you're in there, you are studying the work. I want to know if there is any new stuff bubbling up on the horizon, Christianity-wise, belief-wise, that we can be on the cutting edge of and and know about a, another scoop, if you will, yeah. about what's, Ooh, what's this, on the way. This is a good question because when you when you mentioned Kevin DeYoung, Mason, I thought of a book that he co-authored called Why We're Not Emergent by Two Guys Who Should Be. And it was this <laughs> book about the quote-unquote emergent church, which is now just called progressives or the social justice right. church or honestly like the D church, the deconstru- deconstructed, which is like, um, was those guys like Brian McLaren or Rob Bell. So there was the emergent church. Now there's like the deconstructed church or like the D church church. But yeah, what's next? What's the new flavor coming up? Like Carolina has. It's funny you mentioned that because after I was in college, I ended up working at the poster child of emergent churches, which is Solomon's Porch in Minneapolis, who was pastored by Doug Padgett. So I ended up becoming the youth pastor of that church for a number of years and recently have stepped out of that role and I'm doing other things, but I'm still a part of that church. And it's really funny that you mentioned that because, yeah, I used to be very involved in that world. Oh my gosh. Um, I mean, it's, yeah. it's like that. I, and I'm sorry to digress from the question, but like, it is, is that sort of church, the youth ministry sort of ritual, does that function in a totally different way than it does in evangelical churches that we think of, or is it roughly the same? Yeah, I mean, this is what's kind of cool about the emergent churches. I feel like a lot of like the aesthetics and things that were talked about in youth ministry ended up translating really well to the emergent church. I mean, they met on couches, they would have discussions. And that was like the really cool thing about the emergent church is it took a lot of like how people were formed in their faith in their youth ministry experience. Mm -hmm. And then they took that into like the actual church. Now it just so happened that people like Doug Padgett and Brian McLaren and Rob Bell happened to have this really progressive theology and they were allowing a lot of these doubts and questions and faith happening more so than like the more prototypical like evangelical would. But yeah, they took a lot of the things that and a lot of those people ended up coming out of the youth ministry world. Rob Bell was a youth pastor. Doug Paget was. Brian McLaren was at a time. So they took a lot of the things that you that a lot of people were formed in their faith as in youth ministry, and then just were like, if this forms people in their youth ministry experience, why wouldn't it inform inform you in your 30s or 40s? And so they just took that into like how they actually created the overall churches and. It was really interesting. And that was part of the reason why I was really enamored by it as this 20-something-year-old in college. And that's why I wanted to go into youth ministry at a church like this, because I wanted to take what I was learning from those churches into something like youth ministry. And it just so happened I ended up being at the poster child of emergent churches doing youth men work there. So what's the new flavor? What can we look forward to dropping in 2022? (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, I mean, if you really want a serious answer, sure. one of the things that I'm most interested in is, you know, a lot of conversations going on about like deconstructing and, you know, rethinking like how you think about hell or like, okay, does the Bible actually say this about gay people? Like a lot of questions are happening around that. And I think those are great and important questions. But there are a lot of people who are even like on the next questions in in the line of those questions. So it's beyond just like, do you believe in hell? But like, how do you think about hell in a way where if you are a universalist, for lack of a better term, like how does that affect the way you think about politics? Like if, if you believe that everybody is redeemed, like how do you think about politics? How do you think about something like prison and police uh, in, in light of believing that everybody's redeemed? And in addition to that, uh, I have a really good friend who just wrote a book called Queering Wesley, and and it's in line with a lot of other people who are thinking about queer theology and like and what they're not interested in is defending how do you think about LGBTQ people from like a biblical lens or whatever. They're more interested in what does queerness actually have to say about Christianity and theology. So they're like going beyond that. And those are the kind of questions, those are the kind of conversations I'm interested in is how can we even go beyond just like biblically justifying or theologically justifying these things like hell or universalism or LGBTQ people? How can we go beyond that and thinking about what does all of that mean for us theologically? If we do affirm all of these different things like universalism or LGBTQ people, et cetera, et cetera. And those are the mm. kind of questions I'm most interested in. And I think a lot of people in that deconstruction movement, they're they're thinking about those first initial questions of like, how do I biblically justify all of this? And I think the next kind of question in line of all of that is, how does all of that actually inform the way I should think about theology and how I think about ethics and how I think about politics. And those are the kind of questions I'm most interested in. That's so interesting to think about, too, in light of, obviously, we talk about and are still reeling from the effects of the religious right stranglehold on a lot of conservative and GOP politics mm -hmm. and their ability to organize the coalition around issues of, obviously, abortion and gay marriage back in the day. And it's interesting to even contemplate, would the religious left ever be able to form in such a way to affect change on a national level or maybe even just a local level, um, if, if possible? Because there's like a sort of maybe pessimistic side of me that having been a part of a lot of like lefty and progressive churches, I'm like, I, I'm almost afraid it would get stuck in the kind of Occupy Wall Street quagmire of like, yeah, mm -hmm. we're uh, against something, I th uh, money, uh, something going on here. But but the idea that enough people could, if, if they had like a tenth of the organizational acumen as a mm -hmm. Falwell back in 1970-whatever, what could be done in mm -hmm. the sense of uh, servicing like um, – queer liberation, black liberation in like in the political space. That'd be yeah. that's so interesting to think yeah. about. Yeah, I definitely am more interested in being a part of those circles that are really artic are, are like articulating that in really constructive ways and have really great ways of thinking about how can Christians from their perspective be involved in those kind of movements and that's what I'm most interested in and and not only sharing what 
what kind of work is going on with all of that, but also uh, being a part of that, being a part of that movement of articulating what does it actually mean to think about Christianity from a queer liberations lens or black liberation lens, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Those are the kind of movements I'm really interested in, not just simply defending that, defending like why LGBTQ people can be Christians or defending why you can believe in Black Lives Matter and be a Christian. That is like that. I think it's an important question for people to jump through. But I'm like thinking about what does actually what do those movements actually have to offer something like Christianity and how can Christianity interact and engage with those type of movements? Those are the kind of things I'm really interested in and I'm trying to get them part of. To be part of. That's interesting. I I am excited and curious about a future where maybe in another 30 or 40 years, you know, mainstream Christians are more uh, activists than they have in the past. Not activists in like the uh, very religious right sense, but more mm-hmm. maybe partnering with left activists who have been doing the work for a long time and probably many who are people of faith in the first yeah. place. Because the the religious right, you know, they the, they coalesced around lies and fear, you know, and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I hope we never resemble that or or that's not like the goal to be as like evil as they were, you know, and like right. and moving public thought down the line. Yeah. But it, it, and it's also cool that like these, uh, these kinds of questions and this new theology that's coming down the way isn't like, hamstrung by biblical inerrancy all the time, you know, and having to talk about that endlessly because like there is so much more interesting and cool stuff to talk about. And it's, it's not surprising you're, you're saying that too, even just based on some of the conversations we've had with, with, you know, thought leaders and, um, uh, theologians and Christians on this podcast too. Uh, so that's cool. It's exciting. I hope that's what, uh, becomes more the norm and like takes foot everywhere. And I, Mm -hmm. I think it will based on, Based on what I'm seeing on TikTok, you know, there's no way those kids are going to buy into uh, <laughs> conservative theology again. I just don't think it's going to happen. It's hard to, yeah, imagine Gen Z being pro-hell <laughs> right? in any meaningful way where it's like, yeah, of course. Uh, but who knows? I've been wrong before. Who knows? That's a yeah. good articulation, too, of sort of the greatest deconstruction hits of hell, queer people, women, and it's nice if it can get calcified to the point of these questions are even too small to be worth the angst to uh, answer them. I mean, yeah, with all respect and validity to whatever individual journey, but it would right. be nice if we could just be like, a, yeah, what are you talking? This is so, can we just move past it and get to the next thing so yeah i'm i'm hopeful mm-hmm. for that too for yourself as as a person of faith like do you um do you struggle with how to identify yourself i mean you seem pretty at peace with the way that your faith manifests itself yeah. and, and certainly for your vocation too yeah i definitely like identify as like a pluralist christian as somebody who i'm working with people and have friendships with people who are from a variety of religious traditions from I have a lot of Wiccan friends and pagan friends to Buddhist friends and Jewish friends and Muslim friends and and other Christian friends. And so I really am involved in a lot of those different kind of conversations from a variety of different religious traditions. And yet I still find a lot of solitude and I just find a lot of interest for myself in Christianity. I'm just really fascinated by the Christian faith and by following the person of Jesus. I think it's really interesting. And I'm also the kind of person where I'm like, 
I think other people should do that. Like, I think other people should follow Jesus. I am like, like in the most sort of like non-toxic way, or at least I hope in the most non-toxic way, I'm kind of an evangelist for Jesus. Like, I hope other people follow Jesus, but not in a way where if it means that you can't follow your own religious tradition that you're being called to. But I also really am fascinated by Jesus, and I hope other people would follow Jesus, but not in such a way where I believe that somebody would go to hell because they don't believe that. I just think that the way of Jesus is really interesting. And I hope other people follow that way of Jesus. But if not, like, that's great too. There's other incredible ways for people to participate religiously. And I'm also really interested in like their ways of thinking about faith and their ways of thinking about theology. And I love those kind of differences. But I just happen to be also a person who really is fascinated by Jesus, and I hope other people are. Yeah, you're an evangelist for Jesus the way I'm an evangelist for Paddington 2. Not for podcasting. (laughs) I'm trying to evangelize people out of that, actually. But yes, for something where it's like, hey, listen, I love it. I think you would probably love it. But if you don't, it's fine. Don't worry about it. What if what if there was somebody who's like I'm more of a Patagonian than like one person like are are you gonna be like mm, no two is better yeah the I sequel. will push back yeah I'll okay. say that's wrong listen Old Testament New Testament we all know the New Testament is more <laughs> fun well actually I don't know I actually I was talking to someone the other day that I was like no Old Testament's more fun because you got more oh yeah without a doubt more stories okay so you would be one of those Mason yeah I, says Old Testament I, I like I I probably should be Jewish. <laughs> Yeah, you're not a both equally like our last president. What's that, Caroline? I said we all should be Jewish. Don't make that a drop. (laughs) (laughs) New drop. No. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I have a a tweet in my drafts right now where— but maybe, you know, by the time that it, you put this podcast out, maybe it'll end up being tweeted. But I basically have a tweet where it's like, Christians, and then they say, what would Jesus do? And then I have me— Probably become Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. Oh, yeah, I know. Oh, yeah. I was looking at one of your other tweets today. This this will be a special one for you and me, Caroline. Uh, Mason tweeted, Sean fucked is not only how every frat story begins, but also how you pronounce the name of a famous Christian worship leader. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was like, oh, has he been listening to Kevin? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gracious. Well, Mason, thank you for sharing your story and perspective on everything and all things faith. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back with more Good Christian Fun. This HeadGum Podcast is brought to you by AuraFrames. That is right. Uh, From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, even the friends of your life, every mom loves an AuraFrame. Holy shit, even aunts? Yes, especially aunts. Oh, wow. Because it was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. I mean, these AuraFrames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. I believe it. You have an AuraFrame, don't you? Yes, I actually more than believe it. I know it. Uh, I've got one for my mom, my mother-in-law, my grandmother-in-law. And dare I say your aunt? And dare you say my aunt and my aunt-in-law. Everyone's got one. Everyone loves them. I mean, Mother's Day is right around the corner, and there's no better gift than a digital photo frame. You give them the frame. It's got preloaded pictures in there. And you know what? You can update it with an app. So every time you take a new picture of a sweet little 
uh, person or place or thing in your life, it gets automatically sent to that frame. Exactly. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. Holy smokes. Excellent deal. Yeah, that's A-U-R-A Frames.com. You use the code HEADGUM at checkout to save. HEADGUM. Nice. Yes. Headgum. It's easy to set up. It's loved by everybody, including Oprah, including your aunt. Mm -hmm. So do check them out. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code headgum at checkout to save. Damn right. And terms and conditions apply, of course. Of course. Thanks again to Aura. (sighs) That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome back to Good Christian Fun. It's time to dive into this meaty topic. Come on, let's go. Oh, man. You talked a little bit, Mason, about uh, some of your Christian pop culture uh, curriculum, essentially the tooth and nail stuff, veggie tales. How much of it uh, did overlap with a lot of the content of this movie that we're talking about, the Jesus music? That was what's interesting is it always was sort of a background for me. I knew of Newsboys. I knew of Michael W. Smith. I knew of Chris Tomlin. I knew of all those bands and sang them all at church. But in terms of my own personal investment, they were not the bands that I was deeply, actively buying their CDs and everything when I was sixth grade or whatever, like in high school. I just like, it wasn't what I was into, but they were the bands that I was singing to when I was at church. And so I had some sort of relationship with them. And and that was kind of the interesting thing is I feel like I had a degree of separation with all these bands that were documented on the film versus like maybe other people who are really actively invested in it. And I just like didn't have the, quite the same relationship, but I know of all of them, and I definitely have sang all of their songs. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah, it sounds like you have a Caroline Ely sort of perspective with it. <laughs> Ooh, we call this the Ely approach. <laughs> <laughs> the Ely method, if you will. It's a tried and true in the world of academia. Um, right. Before we talk about it, let's just uh, watch the a little tiny teaser trailer again just to uh, refresh our memories of how this all went down. Well, I have a wonderful electronic invention I want you to see. see, see. <laughs> it looks something like this. Tell me your name and what you do in the music industry. I'm Amy Grant and I have been making music and telling stories since I was a teenager. We're good. We're rolling. You good? Can I ask you a question? Oh, okay. 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 Oh, cool. oh, man, you're more than welcome, man. I'm easy breezy. Yeah. Can somebody throw me a room temp water with paper torn off? Where's my Silas, stupid Silas. son? <laughs> quite a chair you have here. <laughs> How's your fan? I don't want to make this thing negative, but at the same time, I want to be honest. I can't believe I'm getting emotional. It sounded like Adam Scott. This, I've never shared this with anybody. I don't want to say this. The whole thing came along. Loud, me, proud. I don't want to say that. Stop, 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 stop. This thing on paper shouldn't have worked. 
The Jesus movement is no longer a California band. Christian music has become a bit And we see all the intricacies and everything. We're just going to go. The story was so massive. I just want you, can you look at the shot and see if it's okay? I trust you guys completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Jesus music. Okay, so this is a documentary coming at you from the Irwin brothers, who you may know. I mean, they're our, probably our favorite dads, right, Caroline? Oh my God, I didn't realize it was the Irwin brothers. It was, in this fact. This looked way too slick for them. The, <laughs> Erwin Brothers, who you may remember from, I still believe the Jeremy Camp, uh, my dead wife taught me a nice lesson story. I can only imagine my mean dad made a good song, huh? Uh, Freaking Mom's Night Out. And of course, the anti-abortion movie that we'll probably never cover on the show, October Baby. From That's right. 2014. <laughs> so that is kind of their bread and butter. They also got a new one coming out. They got a new one coming out later this year called American Underdog, the Kurt Warner story, starring Zachary Levi, Anna Paquin, and Dennis Quaid about, of course, quarterback Kurt Warner. Uh, so we have that to look forward to. I don't know the story of that guy. Are you going to interview Kurt Warren? <laughs> we should. We should interview Kurt Warren. <laughs> yeah, that'd be cool. We'll see if we can get him. Um, so yeah, so this is this is the perspective from which this documentary is made. It is uh structurally I'm I would be curious to see how they would state what the goals of it are. For me, it read as a reinforcement of the the strength of the infrastructure of CCM. And not a thousand percent hagiographical. Uh, in terms of uh, its treatment of the subject matter and anodyne, but mostly anodyne, uh, mostly a pretty pristine picture of what mm. happened. Um, and touching upon certain inflection points, we did also get an advanced review copy of the Jesus Music book, uh, oh, wow. which at one point has a weird screed against Yoko Ono. What? <laughs> There's a, I want to say I took a picture of this. Just so I'd remember it. Because I the movie, as does the book, places things in a historical context. And at one point, they make the argument that John Lennon actually became a Christian. Uh, the writer, the author of this book, Marshall Terrell, uh, makes the argument, Yoko Ono was not only a breaker of bands, but of faith. It was no oh secret she dabbled in white magic, using numerology to do background checks on new and old friends potential employees and anyone she did business with. She also called on a cadre of tarot readers to plot her every maneuver, including travel plans. She eventually lured Lennon away from God to the point where he used tarot cards for almost every decision. But like his time with the Maharashi in India, it was just a phase. So this is, you know, an often disputed part of the rock (laughs) canon of like this... This woman broke up the Beatles. They would have stayed together. It's Everything was just true. fine. Yeah. They were, <laughs> they were boys. Like, they literally said she's basically a witch. Like it is a <laughs> unequally oh, yoked. Unequally <laughs> yoked. Obviously not yoked. <laughs> oh man. That's so crazy. Oh, okay, gosh. well in the book one thing I this is kind of getting ahead of things, but I noticed that they showed clips of so many people that we never actually heard speak on the movie and including a lot of current I, at artists. At the very end, especially. Yeah. 
which really frustrated me. And I was like, is there a second movie? But Or was it just for this book that they put out with This it? is the most striking thing to me about the movie because it takes an approach in which it goes chronologically starting in the 60s and the vineyard movement, the Jesus music of like Southern California and then sprawling out to like the Nashville industrial complex it is now. But the approach is to focus on basically a couple of artists for each era. So they do 10 minutes on DC Talk. They do 15 or 20 minutes on Amy Grant and Michael W. Smith. But at the end, they do show so many subjects that they interviewed for it that either say one line or zero, including our friend Lee Nash from Sixpence None the Richer. Yes! Dan Hasseltine yes. from Jars of Clay. Oh, who so pissed about says, Lee like, Nash. Uh, Flood was big or something like that. It just completely cuts away. And yeah. you, do wonder, you do wonder what the time issues were, if they said something, obviously, that didn't fit into the overall narrative. Because, I mean, Lee and Dan being two people who would are a little more liberal and probably a little more critical of the uh, maybe contemporary Christian music as it exists today. So it w- it's interesting, though, that they at least made a gesture towards other people being a part of the <laughs> part of the story. You know who I'm surprised they didn't interview, or at least I didn't see a clip of them, was the Reinhardts from Need to Breathe. And at this point, Need to Breathe may be the most well-known quote-unquote CCM band. Sure, yeah. And I was shocked by that, that it didn't even seem as if they interviewed them. And I don't know, I, I, I don't know the CCM world as I used to, but I'm guessing Need to Breathe is still big in the CCM world. And it was shocking that they weren't included. Mm-hmm. I know, there's so many that you could have, you know, our big Italian boy himself. Why is Carmen not in there? Unless they made this after his <laughs> passing. But I, I don't think they did, did they? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Here's one thing, though. The, in all they show B-roll of different eras. And at one point, I do believe whoever's speaking, whatever the inner, whoever the interview subject is, they say, you know, the music industry attracts a lot of different kinds of personalities. Big egos. And it shows Carman. Uh, yeah. When they say big, huge <laughs> egos. <laughs> I know. And it's like him with his sunglasses on, like in a music video or whatever. And I was like, that's. That seems about right that like that's what Carmen gets in this in this documentary about CCM, you know, yeah. it's pretty I much mean, what he was. Let me just ask this binary question as we release this I love the binaries. Wednesday big before. fan of them as a deconstructed <laughs> yeah, evangelical. Loves all binaries. Black Let it be and known. White. <laughs> uh, would you recommend people see this when it comes out Friday? I <laughs> I think as a historical piece, if you really want to understand like the CCM history, I think it does pretty well at that. I mean, it as you mentioned, it does go chronologically, and I think it hits that really well. It does paint CCM in a pretty good light, which I personally probably wouldn't as much. However, I do think it hits like the big key points and the big key artists for the most part. And if you want a decent general history, it's pretty good for that. But if you're like looking for a film that's like trying to paint CCM in a really bad light, probably not the film for you. Yeah, I would say see it. Yeah, if you have any interest in this kind of stuff, which if you're listening to this podcast, I'm guessing you do, um, you should because it, it is good. It's really well made. Um, you do get some good juicy tidbits. Um, but like you said, it is kind of like Disneyfication of like this history and very sanitized, like a little nod to like, 
oh, maybe the racism wasn't a good look (laughs) or whatever. And then kind of moving on. And we'll get to this part. But I think the the ending, the landing that they stick with the current music uh, was very telling of the whole perspective of the podcast. Yes, Or of the uh, documentary and everything. And I found it really like kind of... (laughs) disturbing a little bit. (laughs) Sure. I'm glad I'm not the only one. Yes, okay. (laughs) It was just bizarre to me. POV is so interesting in these things and especially trying to understand who's responsible for what, who's protecting what, and who wants to communicate what. Because in my most generous read of it, there is at least a desire on the Irwin brothers' part to not paint a fully rosy picture. You see this in some details that they share, like, hey, Larry Norman was a big asshole. (laughs) You know, like they they say as much. Uh, They talk about the racism in the split between gospel music and CCM, which honestly could have been 25 minutes long. They spend about two minutes on it. Uh, Right. That's, to me, where all the juice is, especially given the outsize influence of gospel music in in uh contrast to where it's positioned in christian music um but and not to including lecrae in any of that conversation for the most part they only had kirk franklin talk about the ccm gospel split and especially given like all the things that have happened in the last few years and what lecrae has said I mean, at least give him a minute to say something about that, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I mean, and that's something, yeah, I'm conflicted because I'm also wondering, again, this is a very generous read, but are the Irwins like tortured artists that are like, we really do want to paint like with all the grit and grime. And then like the funders were like, well, don't be too uh, raw <laughs> about it. And like, maybe that was part of like, the production, there was a cut where it's like, they did spend 20 minutes on racism. I This is an uncreative criticism, I suppose, especially because it's a lot of what we talked about last week with the Pray Away documentary. You do wish for more detail and more length, which is part of the reason I read this whole thing, which is the book <laughs> version of Jesus Music to see. And by the way, zero uh, racism to speak of in here in terms of wow. like mentioning it at all and like wow. zero time spent. Wow, it's just a regular American history book, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. None of the CRT crap Perfect in your Jesus music book. Uh, wait, Kevin, does that, uh, if, actually finish your thought and then I want to know if the book like adds any more or fills in extra stuff that we didn't see in the movie. I think even, hmm, even the way that they were talking about DC Talk and we we definitely got details that maybe you could have guessed but were never fully formed by official sources as far as how absolutely dysfunctional these three men under the spotlight and under a lot of pressure were in the late 90s and the rationale for their breakup. That stuff is always the most interesting. It's the self-reflection where the idea of like canonizing all this history and saying, they were the poets, the rebels, the weirdos, and they had the music for God. And it started because of the freaking hippie movement, because drugs didn't work anymore. So they're like, what about Jesus, the ultimate drug? Like that that stuff we've all gotten for 50 or 60 years of retelling this history. What is more interesting is the self-reflection moments, which I think add weight and gravity and honestly credibility to the core of what they're trying to say with the music. If you do want it to be, it's a bunch of imperfect humans, people who are beautiful messes making a beautiful noise for the Lord. Like 
talk about the mess more was was my overall feeling about it. What what was your question, Caroline? Um, if the book like brought any more to the table, I guess, than the movie did as far as like giving you some of that detail on the grit. Yeah, there are more details. There are more like this guy influenced this guy and this guy started this record label and Lonnie Frisbee was this guy. <laughs> Lonnie Frisbee, which is one of the best Lonnie names Frisbee. in the world. Lonnie Frisbee, I know. <laughs> Unbelievable name. I have to say, uh, Mason, when I was uh, when I saw you on the on our little Zoom screen today, I was like, ah, he reminds me of the early days of the Jesus music. <laughs> he just fit right <laughs> into the look, man. Really? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> they, I totally see you being. I'm a part not of taking it. that as a compliment. <laughs> it is a compliment. compliment at all. Yes, I think they had a good vibe. Um, yeah, I like those guys. They seem fun. <laughs> Honestly, uh, better than what it happened, what ended up happening in the CCM world. But truly, better than like <laughs> douchebag bullies becoming worship leaders and threatening yeah, to beat exactly. me up. Yep. Uh, <laughs> when they were going through like the early, you know, influencers of this movement and everything, I was writing all, down all their names because some of these names I had heard, but I never like had listened to the music. I was like, the Resurrection Band. That's where it's at. The second chapter of yep. Acts. I got to check this out. Andre Crouch, I've never really listened to. Like, oh my God, these guys are great. Andre Crouch, um, which by the way, uh, sorry to interrupt, Caroline. Andre yes. Crouch, people may not know how much they know him, but he did all the vocal choir arrangements for the Lion King score. He's a very talented oh, what? My God. So if you like him and that, he and that's Andre Crouch. Really? Wow. Yeah. Wow, 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 wow. I didn't know that. See, everyone knows Andre Crouch, even if they don't know <sighs> We that also might show a little bit more of your age, Kevin, than it shows Caroline and I's age. Hey, I'm not that old. Come on. When I was yeah. 25 years old going to buy my ticket for The Lion King, <laughs> I, I thought of myself as a young Bringing child. my two sons. <laughs> um, something I thought was so interesting about that, that early history that I didn't really know was how Billy Graham's like endorsement, quote unquote, that they put yes. on during the expo music, like really kind of legitimized all this as Christian music and not just like weird hippies, like doing more weird hippie stuff. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was surprising to me for a second. And then I was like, oh, of course, Billy Graham would do that. Like he was just trying to piggyback on this movement that was very popular. That's my most cynical reading. I'm sure he had a little bit of respect for these people. <laughs> but like based on the fact that he tried to do it again with the DC Talk Boys at another big music festival, what, like 20 years later? Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh yeah, this guy's just like he's a little hoe for attention. Like he needs these people. Billy, wait, to he be doesn't clear, legitimize Caroline, them; they legitimize him. Caroline, Billy Graham, Billy the hoe for attention, is a little hoe for attention. <laughs> I hope that's how he's remembered in history. <laughs> <laughs> the televangelist Billy Graham. Oh, the little hoe. <laughs> or oh, evangelist. Yeah, no, he wasn't yeah, yeah. a televangelist. That's that his nickname so now, funny. in my mind. Of course, um, yeah. That just no, cracked that me up. Makes sense. That, that Yeah, especially at the time in the infancy of a movement, they would need the cosign of like a white guy that looks like John Wayne being like, I think it's okay. Yes. Don't worry about it. And oh. th those were some of the more, uh, again, the, the particulars that were most interesting was the weird infighting of Striper being like shit on by Jimmy Swagger. And they're like, hey, right. we like Jimmy Swagger. Like, you sucks. converted me. Yeah, yes. <laughs> that was so crazy. That stuff is interesting. And the idea um, that uh, maybe John Still or, or one of the gentlemen who's not exactly a musician, 
talked about, uh, John Still was the editor of CCM Magazine for however many decades, but they talked about pop, pop audiences are way more forgiving than CCM Christian audiences as far as whatever the thing is. Amy Grant's mm-hmm. personal life or this person's aesthetic choices, pop audiences are way more forgiving than that. Mm-hmm. And it did, yeah, it it made me think about um, something I w- that has never come to mind to me before about how CCM audiences always consume those art and those artists is a little bit a precursor to how mainstream pop audiences consume their artists now, which Mm. is the sense of like uh, listening kind of equals tacit endorsement of their life. And if it doesn't like it, like if a, if a celebrity or like a singer's personal life is out of whack, especially politically with your own personal world worldview, there's way more scrutiny on that in 2021 than there was in 1982. Like the idea that, yes, like Nicki Minaj appears to be vaccine hesitant slash anti-vax is way more an issue than it would have been 20 or 30 years ago. But that was mm-hmm. always true of the CCM. Uh, in, in a way, I wonder if the pop audiences and the CCM audiences have exchanged their need for moral uh, credibility as far as their extra, per- you know, I'm thinking of, of course, our former president, where it's like, I don't care what he did in his personal life. If he says he's a Christian, it's good enough for me. And now there's more of a purity test that secular people and secular audiences kind of put to secular artists. And what's interesting that I you know, heard from Michael Sweet in that Striper interview on the film was that because of the pushback he got from the CCM world, and I've heard I've interviewed Michael Sweet a few times on my own podcast. Really? And oh, how fun! Yeah, I have a music podcast where I interview mostly like tooth and nail bands, but I have interviewed Michael Sweet a few times. And the way that he talks about his music and his experience in that world has always been: we were the outliers, we were the punks of CCM, and so he has always sort of thought of himself as outside of it mostly because of that initial experience with being kind of discredited. And what's interesting is, despite the fact that when we think about Striper broadly now, we don't think of them as this like punk, outside of the fold, edgy band. Maybe like Five Iron Frenzy would be that type of band, but not Striper. But in their imagination, because of their experience in CCM, they do. And that I found really interesting is... Even in you mentioned like the mainstream side of things, like if Nicki Minaj thinks of herself, she probably thinks of herself as like the edgy hip hop artist now versus other artists just because of the type of experiences that she's had with not only the vaccine stuff, but also with sexuality and whatnot. It's very interesting to see like how they view themselves in the broader arena totally. of music that they're in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. That was that was one of my big reflections, too, after watching it. And especially as they went decade by decade and each artist introduced themselves as if they were like a total 180 reaction against what happened yes. before, which is just like kind of, I guess. But <laughs> and the other part of it that I found so fascinating was um, for how much they insisted that they were the outsiders and the rebels and the counterculture of whatever was popular at the time. they 
cared so much about being validated by people like Billy Graham or by the CCM magazine, like Larry Norman driving to the editor's like, house to fix his cover of CCM, which he didn't want to do in the first place, and how much they knew their chart numbers still all these years later. And, you know, like they they were not rebels. They are not punks in the way that they, I think, really imagine themselves to be because they very much obviously cared about mainstream acceptance, which is fine. Like, but just don't act like you're, you're like this right. guy who really came from left field or whatever when like you're dying to, you know, get on stage with all these other artists and be given this stamp of approval by them. And that's why I find, th- this is the thought that I had coming from my perspective growing up in my relationship with the CCM world, and like I mentioned before, my relationship with the tooth and nail and that kind of alternative Christian music world was what's interesting now, over the last 10 years, you see so many of these alternative Christian bands come out as not evangelicals, whether they've become progressive Christians or atheists or whatever. And yet, a lot of those artists from the CCM world haven't moved in their faith in that same way. And I've always wondered like how much of that is due to the fact that a lot of these Christian artists from the alternative side of things like Under Oath and now Switchfoot. I don't know if you saw the news about Switchfoot, but like all of that, oh, I wonder Grace? how much, yeah. And with Grace, yeah. how much of that has, how much of their actual affinity towards like actually punk music and that punk ethos has influenced them in their faith in the way that it has versus CCM artists who clearly are not, but think that they are. And yet they remain like very stalwarts within the CCM world and haven't moved in their faith whatsoever in the same way that you see a lot of these like tooth and nail and alternative Christian music bands have. Well, that man, that's such a salient point too, because I guess And that's you, probably another podcast in and of itself, but well, my yeah. goodness. Well, because I'm thinking about one of the primary figures in this documentary that gets a lot of time spent on him is Michael W. Smith, who does wear a camouflage baseball cap with an American flag on it, which Blessed. of yes. course, of course, of course, the gentleman is a white nationalist who did like a let us worship-esque rally at the, you know, nation's capital last November pre-vaccine, which with a bunch of unmasked people. And the thing is, in the context of, of the country and the world, that is rebellious and fucked up. <laughs> so, <laughs> but because of that, that can reinforce the idea. It's like, yeah, we're rebels. And, and it, right. it, it plays into... It, there's like this really funny, I think we're articulating this really funny intersection of the sort of punk myth-making or like rock and roll rebellion myth-making intersecting with nationalism and things that are probably morally putrid <laughs> and people like, like it it, it, it intersects with the, uh, uh, essentially like the 21st century evangelical persecution complex where it's like mm. the number one yes. problem in this country is cancel culture. The number one problem in this country is critical race theory, whatever. So it's like, if you believe that, then you are in rebellion with the majority. Abortion is popular in Texas. <laughs> it's like a majority, like it, a majority right. of people in Texas are pro reproductive rights. So yeah, it is rebellious. So it's, it keeps reinforcing it. It's like a feedback loop. <laughs> right. Totally. Yeah. And uh, I, I know it, it's a little reductive, but you do find that all these, these, 
artists that were talking about how different they were and everything are like all white men, you know? And it's like your problem was just like artistic purity. Like you didn't have a lot of actual barriers to anything you did. And you were allowed to wear makeup and like your metal outfits and whatever. And you ha- you risked very little. And I think that the few people that maybe actually were trying to do something different or or uh, fight against the status quo were probably people like Keith Green, who was giving away his records for free, or Kirk mm-hmm. Franklin, who made a speech that was mm-hmm. probably very dangerous for his career at the mm-hmm. Dove Awards. Like, those were actual risks that they make. Or, or people who left that industry altogether. I think that's quite rebellious. And actually, if you're talking about, if you have, like, an ideological reason for your rebellion, it causes you to take action that's risky. And most of these people, it was just like, I made a song that had rap in it. You know, it's like, okay, that wasn't that like crazy for you to try. I want to be clear, and I'm going to get this quote right because it's in the book. Toby Mac did say, I didn't know contemporary Christian music existed. (laughs) So when I wrote my first Christian lyric... I thought I made this whole thing up. This quote. He says so, that in the movie right. too. He says that in the movie. I mean, isn't that just a perfect little bow? So Toby Mac believes he invented contemporary Christian. He straight up <laughs> thought he did it first. Liberty University grad. And then uh Kevin Mac says, and this might have been editing too, but Kevin Mac says, we tried to create something that had been created before. And then they play a clip of Jesus Freak, which overlays perfectly with Nirvana <laughs> smells like teen yes, spirit. I was about to say, yeah. yes. I never quite realized how much Jesus Freak literally sounded like Nirvana until they did that. And I was like, oh my God, it literally. And here's the funny thing is Nirvana did that in 1991. Jesus Freak came out four years later. So it took them four years (laughs) to do what Nirvana was doing. They were even slow on their copy (laughs) and their plagiarism. (laughs) Well, they had to do it by hand back then. They didn't have these fancy computers, Caroline. They had to let it sink in for a couple years first. I know. Also, another thought that I had from all of this, you know, along those lines was, I, I, I think I have, I put it in my like little tweet drafts, was I never knew how influential Coldplay was until I watched this film. Oh, it's yes. amazing to think that like whatever Coldplay was doing in 1998, if they were even a band in 19, 1998, how much that whatever that sound was ended up influencing maybe five years later what contemporary Christian music, especially worship music, would end up sounding like. So if you listen to like Yellow, which I think was like, what, 2000? Five years later, that's exactly what worship music sounded like. Oh, yes. I didn't realize, especially towards the end of the documentary where they did more of the 2000s and 2010s uh, kind of historiography of it, I didn't realize how much Coldplay had made an influence on this. And they didn't say anything about Coldplay, but that's just my assumption. Coldplay made an a- massive influence in all of this. Of course, I know. And to me, that's that's the more interesting story is, in addition to kind of getting into the nitty gritty and things that wouldn't be as sanitized to put in the documentary, is seeing truly where it intersected with popular music. An actual intersection, because there were times in which like church music did become rock music, but then rock music became church music again. But like, but rock and roll as we know it today, obviously is found, the roots of which are found in black churches. They would have had to expand the scope of the documentary to honestly, literally all popular music in the 20th century started in black church. You'd have to go back to 
the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. And all these white artists in the documentary keep saying rock music, this like Christian music was started in church. And it's like, okay, they're leaving a massive part about <laughs> know, right? There's right? one little Name detail, one little <laughs> yeah. adjective you could yeah. insane. Yeah, I, uh, Christian music, you know, we look to British men for what's next. We had uh, we had Coldplay. I think Sam Smith is next. Um, oh, that's going to be a big influence. Ed Sheeran. <laughs> I'm in love with <laughs> the shape sort of, of God. Sound. Name another one. <laughs> well, actually, I was going to say Imagine Dragons, and I was like, oh, no, they're from Utah. <laughs> I couldn't hum an Imagine Dragons song. Mace, I'm going to disagree with you that um, Coldplay started it, started worship music. It was actually Chris Tomlin that was responsible for the sound of all worship music. And you I don't, do, okay, I, that might be fair. I do, I'm fully kidding, but the quote in this, <laughs> this part of the book, they're talking about Chris Tomlin's influence, uh, and he, he says, according to CCLI, an organization that licenses music to churches, Tomlin is the most sung contemporary artist in U.S. congregations every week. Since glee clubs have fallen off popularity, that might make Tomlin the most often sung artist anywhere. Which they also say in, in, the, in documentary. the documentary. Like, more yeah. people have sung Chris Tomlin songs than any one artist in the world. In history. That, that's so funny you flagged that because when they said that, I was like, huh. And then it just flew by me. And now I'm thinking about that. Like, there is absolutely no way to quantify There's that no like way. in any way at all. That is such a wild thing to do. Like, did Chris Tomlin write, like, his PR person write that for the movie? Like, oh that is God, so yes. insane. I know. It's an impossible statistic to refute. Um, P.S. By the way, speaking of Chris Tomlin, his interview setting, I think, was way too humble. Like, I think for each of those artists, you should have seen them in front of their entire mansion. <laughs> like, Which you did yes. for a good Front amount door. of them. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Toby, for sure. Um, can we talk about Toby Mac? Yeah. Y'all think he's okay? Is he okay? What do you think? <laughs> oh, I just... Well, I, <laughs> I think my understanding of Toby Mac, which by the way, he is going through hell right now. So I will hand that to him. I'm, I'm not trying to like dunk on him or anything for that reason. But also I just, I think I had always thought of him as like kind of a spunky dork. as <laughs> like a person like that was kind of his vibe to me. But in when they talked about DC talk and sort of the issues going on between all the band members and everything, I was like, oh, Toby Mac was like a jerk. You know, he is a controlling, difficult guy to be with. And we've all worked with someone who's like a perfectionist in that way. <laughs> Guilty. And- Sorry, Caroline. <laughs> I, was, I, was, yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that like, oh, it could be a nightmare. And it just, it, it changed my whole perception of him. And, and then to hear other artists say like, yeah, Toby, you know, he's talented or whatever, but he will outwork anyone. Like, one of those people, uh-huh. I think he described himself as relentless, where I was just like, oh, yikes. <laughs> you don't want that to be, like, your number one adjective. No, absolutely not. Yeah, so that, that surprised me to get that impression of Toby in this movie. My Okay, sort of along those lines, a couple years ago, so I just was at Wild Goose Festival two weeks ago, and I think, like, Two or three years ago, there was a person named Amy Grant who happened to be there. And in the documentary, as they talk about her, I I, I like I know your guys' interview with her recently. I know what she has done at Wild Goose. I still qu- like from the documentary itself, I can't quite imagine 
her saying what she was saying on the documentary, given the context that I know of her on your podcast and at Wild Goose. What seemed contradictory about it? Well, I mean, you just talked about like with Michael W. Smith. She has a very close relationship with Michael W. Smith. And I don't know exactly what her relationship with him is. But it seems really interesting given the fact that it seems like she's sort of progressive or very progressive. Mm -hmm. It's hard. It's kind of hard to know. But regardless, it's very interesting her relationship with the industry and with people who are established in the industry. I don't know. I just found that interesting. Now, that's not to say you can't have friends within that. I just found that part interesting is that she wasn't more... And and maybe some of that got it edited out. Who knows? But it just like that was not the image you got from Amy Grant because what they really focus on is her divorce, but not the fact that literally like two years ago, she was at this very progressive Christian music festival. And now granted, she probably was not interviewed when you had interviewed her, but like... Yes. Had that been the case, it doesn't seem as if they would have put that part of her in. Mm-mm. And I found that to be interesting. Yes. Is that was not the image portrayed about Amy, Amy Grant other than her divorce. So, yeah, anyway, I just found that sort of like confliction around like how you should think about these artists to be really interesting because there's times where I'm like, I really want to empathize with them. And then also times where I'm like, I kn- I feel like you might be a little different than this. Yeah, but it might be just be from the producers too. Well, and especially with her, the the most accurate read of her that they gave in the documentary is that the industry accepted her because it was the vision of women that the church was very comfortable with, which was essentially I don't know if they use the word submissive, but essentially submissive. The word they did use was demure. And then mm-hmm. they said, little did they know the freaking yes, powerhouse exactly. that she was or whatever. And that was the most accurate thing. The idea that she pretty much got through the door, obviously because she was the whole package in the sense of like, they spent a good amount of time with her saying like, yeah, my voice kind of sucked. Uh, I didn't think they were going to let me do anything. So she had the aesthetic of being... A daughter, essentially. She Proverbs 31 herself right into the industry. Fully. 100%. Yeah. Yes. And so it was like, well, I want to protect this young young gal and uh, give her a record deal. That's fully what it felt like. And yes, the amount of time that they uh, her they they talk about her divorce. And it's part of this package in the documentary of, listen, a lot of people have fallen in this industry. Everyone's imperfect that's what happens when there's a lot of imperfect people and it gets equated with um one artist alcoholism and another guy's sort of like moral failures and it's like her divorce which i feel like is different um (laughs) yeah well okay here's one thing i wanted to flag about that section was like because they were going through it and i thought they're the point they were going to make, which was what we've all made, is that there was just weird sexism going on at the time. And Amy Grant getting a divorce and getting remarried was, you know, she was such a, like, oh, for doing that, whatever. Not a Billy Graham way. And, <laughs> but then I realized it was put in with, like, the moral failing section of the documentary. And based on her also, like, talking about that drawing that she did where she felt like she did, she forfeited every right to like be on stage or be a Christian or whatever. 
I thought it was like kind of a veiled admission of guilt, not about a divorce, but about an affair. And I know she's always maintained that there wasn't an affair and there wasn't like an overlap. You know, she did that whole Larry King interview like back in the day. (laughs) But based on that, like a a divorce isn't a sin. And I don't think they were trying to portray it at that. So I was curious, like, is this Amy kind of saying like, yeah, there was some hinky stuff going on there. I'm not going to get into details, but like I messed up and I like had to forgive myself, et cetera, and get out of that. that I I didn't quite take it as that, Caroline, because I think, contextually for the time, 20 or 30 years ago, divorce probably had as much of a negative connotation as a quote unquote affair would now in the evangelical church. Like obviously like- I understand that, but then why put it in the documentary now? Because the documentary- <laughs> yeah, I, it was I, a strange choice. You know? yeah. yeah, it was weird. That's really, I couldn't understand it. It was like, yeah, a divorce is obviously not news at this point. So why is this part of like, oh yeah, we've all got like skeletons in our closet, you know? So weird. <laughs> I know. Kevin, I appreciate you talking about this as if you're an elder uh, who is 20 to 30 years older than us <laughs> telling so, us, okay, like, listen, 20 honey, to 30 years understand. ago, Carolina Mason, <laughs> so, I, I, divorce. I'm just saying, there were differences between my first divorce in 1982 <laughs> and my second divorce in 2006. They were different. They were and received it, differently. And between that was lying. By my community, my grandchildren <laughs> treated me differently when it happened. It was a whole different ballgame. Um, yeah, oh, but Mason, I think, uh, I think that was such a great point you made about like kind of the weird branding mismatch of Amy sometimes where like she is still very much aligning herself with Michael W. Smith, who is conservative openly and kind of problematic as a person. And yet she's like, seems to be taking baby steps into like showing her more liberal side. And that is confusing. And it's a little weird. And I think the only way I could explain it is that Amy is maybe a little bit more in the like classic old pop star world of thought, which is like, don't talk about your politics ever. Keep it light. Keep it cool. And then she probably really does love Michael. You know, she does love W in her heart. So maybe for her, it's just like, loves one I w. block it out. <laughs> There's yeah. only one W in her life. <laughs> and that's Mike. So maybe she just like blocks all that stuff out, you know, and just doesn't see it as like a problem or uh, yeah, a mismatch of what she's like actually trying to, to say she believes in. She's also a 60-year-old woman who's not online a lot in the year 2021. <laughs> yes. So the idea of like Twitterfication brain rot of like, if you talk to this person, you should go to jail probably doesn't right, exist right. as much in her world. I <laughs> totally, mean, and not to yeah. oversimplify it. Uh, but yeah, that's definitely true. And on the subject of Michael W. Smith, I do just want to fly. The pivot point of the whole documentary's transition from CCM and talking about like the the most primarily um, influential albums and genres of music within contemporary Christian music, going to worship music, we do owe to more than Coldplay, more than U2, more than Chris Tomlin, we do owe to September 11th. <laughs> Never forget. I, uh, I, as he was talking about, I was like, God. "No way! Thank this God is for be September 9/11. Michael That's W. Smith. No way. Got a word for such a time as this, and he said <laughs> it was just in my head for such a time as this, for such a time as this. <laughs> and ultimately, he said, "I have to make a worship album," and I didn't want to, and I was arguing oh with God, God, but I did it anyway. And then the album came. <laughs> the album came out on 9/11. <laughs> I know, which he points to as like, oh, such miraculous timing. Uh, You know, like, it must have been God knowing, like, (laughs) 9-11 was about to happen. 
But uh, as we've talked Unreal. about many times on this show, many albums dropped on 9-11. Uh, Mariah Carey's album dropped. Uh, that P.O.D. album dropped. That's right. <laughs> Quite yeah. a few releases on yeah. 9-11. Where's P.O.D. So... saying for such a time as this? We are the youth <laughs> yeah. of the nation. God did not ordain. Also, folks, I just want to flag, because they do, they did interview him for the documentary, the lead singer of Third Day, Mac Powell, was in this for two seconds. Mm-hmm. Third Day put out a hugely successful album called Offerings, a worship album in the year 2000. This, in my memory and even historical understanding, was way more the pivot point than MWS being like, "Uh, 9-11's coming, time to worship. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and I mean, how well-timed, too, that worship music was like becoming the new thing in CCM as well. Because it is interesting. I'm glad they acknowledge that. that that, But I just have so many more questions like (laughs) anyway yeah i mean obviously i'm looking for something a little more oh yeah realistic as far as the picture of what oh my gosh and then when they were showing the clips of like the uh conference that he was at i guess where everyone was singing and like praying whatever and they were talking about it like it was this like touchstone for everyone in the culture and i was like what is this like i've never (laughs) heard of this conference at all like what is he talking about um, and Michael W. was like, he was a producer on this documentary. So I think he was just given a little free time to kind of play with his toys in the, in the movie space, I think. I get it. By the way, his studio setup is sweet looking. Man, <laughs> yeah. that's a nice yes. setup. I was thinking that too. It, it was like a full ass <laughs> barn. Ah, it's a full barn, beautiful LED screens for his Pro Tools setup and that gorgeous keyboard. Oh my goodness gracious. Yeah, I mean, listen, anything else we want to talk about with this uh, film before we give it a final rating? Yes. um, I wanted to talk about the ending when they talk about, like, the stars of now and, like, kind of what's happening and all those artists. Lauren Daigle. Keeping the log burning. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Big, lot of fire talk. Oh, my God. (laughs) I was like, what are we doing? Um, But I that part... Oh, it just kind of made my skin crawl, especially as such a contrast to the the older artists and them talking about their like, kind of checkered history with CCM. It felt like every current, you know, star was like selling me something. They were all talking about like how the music is really just proof of like God's world, like working through the crowd or whatever. They were just so obviously, I think, trying to to portray their music as, as something to worth buying still. And I thought that was like really irritating. <laughs> the kind of mentor mentee parallels were so funny too, where it's like this person talked to this person. To me, I got really sad when Lecrae said the only person who ever reached out to me was Kirk Franklin. To ever. me, that's the industry telling on itself of like, yeah, we're pretty racist. Uh, yeah, Still, <laughs> we'll let yes. the black guy talk to the <laughs> black guy, but totally, that's yeah. it. It's yeah, yeah like come on, KJ52. Where are you at, KJ52? <laughs> yeah, Lecrae needs talking to. Where's KJ John Rubin? Do not tell Silence. me what I can or can't do. Silence. Wait, what were the other? I'm forgetting. Uh, can y'all remind me what the other mentor mentee relationships they spot? Diggle and Amy Grant. Yeah. Um, and then that one woman, I, I forgot her name. I didn't write it down. Mandisa? But she said that uh, Toby Mac like helped her a lot. Mandisa said Toby Mac. Mandisa, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. The the guy from for King and Country got mm-hmm. interviewed a lot. I don't know if he mentioned anything about a mentor mentee relationship, but he was in that section quite a bit, and it makes sense. I mean, they're huge and whatnot, but 
I found that really interesting. Also, isn't he like related to somebody who's really big in the mainstream industry? Oh, let's see. I mean, we can find out. Or may- maybe it's right. I feel like there's somebody in that CCM Australian world that's also like Rebecca St. James. Yeah. Who's that? she related? Is, is that the Fur King or Country person? Uh, yes. During high school, the brothers supplied background oh, vocals was- for their sister, Rebecca St. James. Okay. Okay. That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. That's what it is. Well, wasn't there a Houston who was like on the Hills, who was representing Hillsong? Or yeah. It's it probably one of those, I think it was Joel Houston was his name. Oh, maybe that's who I was thinking of. Ugh. Yeah. 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 I mean, the whole Houston industrial complex. The Houston family. Also, this is framed with like, obviously, old white men, old white men, blah, blah, blah. But it's also Greg Laurie and Louis Giglio, which, look them up. There's not, <laughs> they're not men I'd want to have dinner with, unfortunately. Greg Laurie also, of Harvest like, Church. And, when's uh, the last time they were a big deal? Like, I cannot believe they were interviewed. That was, yeah, that was fascinating. Weird. I know. I wanted John Piper to be on this thing being like, I loved Lecrae at one point. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, they did do, like, a little thing together at one point, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, John Piper there did, is a, a, I guess, There is a verse. Gospel Coalition connection. Yeah, <laughs> there literally is. I think when Lecrae bought into uh, some white supremacist bullshit, unfortunately. Oh, man. I The one thing I was also thinking, too, with, with Lecrae and Kirk and, and them talking about the issues of racism in the industry that are still going on, like, not much has improved. I was just thinking, like, man, these guys are, like, beyond gracious, like, they yes. had, I couldn't believe like the lengths that they continue to go to. I mean, even appearing on this documentary to like build the bridge that will never be built from the other side no. to get YCCM to like acknowledge their pain and like support Black Lives Matter. Like it just will right. never happen. And they are beyond kind to like keep giving the benefit yes. of the doubt, you know? Now, the documentary did uh, include a clip of the speech that Kirk Franklin gave at the Dev Awards that the Dev Awards themselves cut out where he yes, spotlit right. pl- oh my police God. brutality. I totally forgot yeah. about that. Mm-hmm. And they didn't even mention that, like, oh, by the way, they cut this from the broadcast. They also showed the super, like, sad clip of the protester and Kirk Franklin talking. And Kirk's like, let me shake your hand. And let's just see it. The guy said, I'm not going to shake your hand. Yeah. So some of the stuff they do lay bare, but yes, you do just wish for a little more depth or at least a little more time spent. And it feels like it's such the bare minimum too. I mean, you think back to like what Michael Tate was dealing with in the 90s with DC Talk and all the things that they were talking about. And it doesn't feel all that different than what Kirk Franklin was talking about. And it's almost 20 years later. Mm -hmm. And it's just hard to believe that in 20 years, the same conversation is still happening within that CCM world. And it's just, yeah, that was one of the really interesting things to me was not only was it that they basically were not upfront about the racism, but also the fact that they tried to make it seem as if there was a progression and the conversation around racism in that world. Yet at the same time, it clearly showed that that's not at all what happened. The, the same conversation is still happening. And that I found that really interesting too. Yeah. They kind of danced around that a little bit. Just bizarre. Toby. I'm assuming that most like artists and, uh, who are like of color who want to be Christian musicians, like don't even just don't even fuck with the main establishment anymore. <laughs> like, I'm sure they just, like, go find their own other label elsewhere mm-hmm. that they don't have to deal with that shit. All right. And perhaps that's why CCM has stayed so white. Well, 
you know what? I think we've solved it and we summed it up. And now it's time to rate the documentary. The way this works, Mason, is we're going to give it a holy roast or a holy toast. Holy toast is the thumbs up. That's when we send this thing to heaven where DC Talk, who hated each other, will be toasting it <laughs> forever. <laughs> holy roast, we send it downstairs. With Jimmy Swagger. Just kidding. I, I don't think he's well. <laughs> well, maybe, well, we'll find out, I guess, uh, when we all go there. Or if we're not sure one way or the other, we can send it to Purgatory, a la... Come on, let's go. Oop, not that one. <laughs> the space Come on, let's go to Purgatory. <laughs> yeah. The liminal space. <laughs> Stephen right. Groshavin, they didn't spend too much time on him, actually. Yeah, he was just sort of like a hype man for whoever was talking next. Yeah, isn't that funny? All right, Caroline, <laughs> yeah, we'll start with you. Um, yeah, I give it a toast. Again, I think it's interesting if you're if you're curious about this stuff. And while it is definitely not exhaustive or even very um, critical, it is a little insightful. And, and like for all the reasons we've talked about, it will tell you a lot about CCM, even if that wasn't the documentary's like intention in the first place. Um, and and a, a great little history, and honestly, kind of helpful for me, like. Because in the way we've done this podcast, we've jumped back and forth between these decades so often. It was nice to just see it like strung along in an actual timeline of like, this is how this all progressed. Um, so yeah, for the reason, I'd, I'd give it a toast. Great. We turn to Mason. Caroline, I actually kind of agree with you. Despite all of our criticism, which we just named for the last like hour and a half, I do want to give it a holy toast because it does give that history really, really well. It paints it in a brighter picture than I probably would, but at the end of the day, it goes chronologically and it makes sense in that way and it's easy to watch. And uh, yeah, I think as long as you go into it knowing that there might be better criticisms to be made, I think it's actually a pretty good documentary in just giving the history of the world of CCM. So... Mm -hmm. I think I might kind of give it a holy toast. Very hesitantly, but giving it a holy it's toast. It's a light toast. You're just taken <laughs> out of the toaster toast. right in time. Yeah. <laughs> just just right in time. <laughs> All right. You know, I'm going to make a unanimous holy toast. I, I yeah. uh, align with Mason and my lightness of my toast because it is, as you say, Caroline, very telling. You know how movies, they say movies are two movies in one. One is the movie that's the literal story they're telling, and two is a documentary about the people making it. This is obviously the content of the documentary, but it's also a story about the people making the documentary, what's important to them, what they leave out, what they chose to care or not care about. The thing I would do, and it's so easy to play, you know, backseat driver, punch-up quarterback, Monday morning... Another mixed metaphor, but I think this would have benefited from at least flipping the thesis. It definitely already felt a little proof texted before going into it of like, this is a great thing that has its issues. If you had a POV that still had as much access to the people who were there making it, maybe you would have gotten a little more quotes from Dan Hasseltine or from Lee. Maybe you would have gotten a little more in-depth from Amy and she would have talked about the things that were more unpleasant about her experience, perhaps. If you flip the ratio of things that were uh, pleasant and sort of glowing about people's experiences versus the things that were negatives, the racism, the infighting, uh, the strange lack of forgiveness within the community. If you flip those things from like 20% negative, really 7% negative, 93% positive to the other way around, <laughs> I think you have a fascinating thing. 
Or you could do what they did in the documentary parts where view it all through the prism of one artist. So this is an Mm. understanding of the genre and all of its pitfalls and all its history as seen through the eyes of Amy Grant and what her 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, rise and fall were like. And then you get a full 360 worldview of it just from following one POV character. But that would be a different kind of movie. That'd also be a very interesting movie. I also love that when talking about the historical fact of her Amy Grant and Mercy Me's collab, they do cut to footage from their own movie. I can only imagine in which a fictional Bob Millard and a fictional Amy Grant sing together on stage. Like that remember. was time they spent on that instead of hearing Rebecca St. James talk about purity. Yeah, <laughs> like, oh, or that's... Jackie Velasquez, or any, or Lady even talk about Reliant K. They show Jackie and they show Rebecca sitting down. I believe Rebecca St. James, I think, was pregnant in the shot they showed oh of her. Oh, my God. Sitting down. And yes, they they speak not uh, one word to these women. It'd be so interesting. I would love to see. You know what? We had hashtag release the Snyder Cut. Hashtag release the Irwin Cut. Let's see the seven-hour yes. version yes. of this documentary. Warts and all. Oh, gracious. But we're not the final word. You can go to at Christian Fun Pod yourself and give it a roast or toast. So get out there and... Pokemon, go to the polls. Guess what? <laughs> you grows the economy. Uh, have you guys seen video footage of him recently? Oh. I don't Getting, recommend. Uh, Prince Philip vibes? <laughs> yeah, but Prince Philip now vibes. <laughs> oh, no. Was that Pat Robertson? <laughs> No, it was our president, Joe Biden. Um, oh, really? Okay. Yeah. It kind of sounds okay, so like so basically the same thing. Him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're indistinguishable to me. Cozy. All right, Mason, in here, we're dimming the lights and we're lighting the candles and we're taking it to a more worshipful space, but we're not here to plug ourselves or to promote our projects. We're here to lift them up to the Lord. And we start as we do every week with our demure little daughter of a woman, Caroline Ailey. I've got just sweet little projects coming at you every day at Caroline's Farts on Twitter, on Instagram. I'm laying it out there. I'd like to lift up a TV show I'm a little behind the times on, but it was so good. Cheers. It's called, <laughs> it's called uh, Physical on Apple Plus, starring another Brit taking our jobs. Um, such a good show. It was just really funny and uh You know, for anyone who also has, like, eating stuff, it was a really good depiction of how that mental state feels, too. And I thought they did a really good job with that. Um, So, yeah, I definitely recommend that. Plus, great style. Physical and Apple TV Plus. It's a period piece that takes place in the 80s, right? Yes. Yes. So, you know, everyone likes the 80s. Watch it. Kind of like a woman becoming sort of a Jane Fonda, you know, workout. I think type. she's so funny. I like everything she's she does. So good. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, thank you, Caroline. We turn it to Mason. I just want to lift up G, C, and D chords. Okay. So oh, great. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Let's start a band. Doing the heavy lifting for years. <laughs> never get any thanks. I mean, we just got talk, d- done talking about Jesus music. Mm-hmm. They're really the unsung heroes of Jesus music. Yeah, uh, no, but I also honestly. should have interviewed them for another 10 minutes. <laughs> That's right. 
Uh, I, I uh, do lots of things in the world. You can find me at MasonMeniga.com. I am most active on Twitter, at MasonMeniga. I'm also pretty active on Instagram, at MasonMeniga. And I also have been doing YouTubing stuff. So if you're interested in thinking about different things around theology and your faith, uh, maybe my YouTube might be of help. You can just find me uh, Mesa Menega and you'll find my my YouTube stuff and uh, I have been recently in hiatus of that because I literally have been doing a Master of Arts in Theology but I'll begin back into that soon so be on the lookout for new videos now see I think you should continue the YouTube channel but make it a sort of like art slow TV where you're not necessarily doing the sort of work you were doing before where it's like a very clean cut like speaking thing but it's just a camera put in the corner of your room while you're studying and you're just like oh boy oh gosh and it's just you like taking notes and stuff I think that'd be cool there would there would be that would only be uploaded on Pornhub to be honest (laughs) listen there's a category for everything if you can imagine it it exists (laughs) unfortunately <laughs> what's the what's the last great thing you you saw or you watched? What do you want to lift up in the South Oh, that's culture? right. God, you, you know, in terms of something that I have been really profoundly influenced by recently in pop culture. Last year I watched this show called Rami and it has two seasons out on mm-hmm. Hulu and it's about this Muslim American from New Jersey like second generation immigrant. And he wrestles with his faith in this really interesting way that even if you're a Christian or Muslim or whatever religious tradition you're in, I think it's super relatable. And also, it's really fucking funny. So you should just watch it because it's really funny. And I think it's really relatable about all the tensions that people experience in their faith. And uh, it's just a great show. And you should totally watch it. And it's on Hulu. Oh, yeah. Hulu. Rami, the sequel to Ratatouille. Uh, you can lift me up. <laughs> that was Remy and Ratatouille. I know, I know it was Remy. You can lift me up at Kevin T. Porter everywhere. Uh, I will lift up. <laughs> I will lift up the score to Pieces of a Woman by Howard Shore. I haven't seen that movie, and I'm not going okay. to. With Vanessa Kirby and Caroline's next door neighbor Shia LaBeouf. Uh, but I'm. Whoa. Uh, I'm not gonna. I know, right? But Howard Shore still showed up and did the work for that movie that I'm never going to watch. And so I've been listening to it on my walks while I read books, while I take care of my little boy, uh, and while I do a bunch of great things that are really productive and good for the world. Uh, so I, I'll plug that, Pieces of a Woman. It's giving me a little piece by Howard Shore. And uh, listen, you can lift us up everywhere. Uh, you can lift us up everywhere at Christian Fun Pod, and you can go to patreon.com slash goodchristianfun. For more good Christian fun. And let's once again give a shout out to our new lovely producer, Emma Erdbrink, who's really doing her best to make this show listenable against our <laughs> best efforts. Against all odds. Against all odds. <laughs> so give her a shout out and a thanks and a hell yeah anytime that you see her name come across your social media. Mason, thank you so much for joining us on the show tonight, thank sir. Thank you, Mason. Thank you so much. You two were so much fun to hang out with. What a lovely time. And there's nothing left to say except for, okay. Okay. I I love love you. you. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Uh, What do y'all think? Let's do life together. What? Let's do life together. What do y'all think would be like a good fitting song to go out on for this episode? Oh, good. Something from the the documentary. I forget what the final song is in the movie. 
maybe some uh, maybe some of the early guys, like maybe a Larry Norman or maybe a Keith Green. You know what? I'm going to go early. I'm going to go 1980. And this is not a band featured in the documentary. It's the band The Imperials and their song, The Trumpet of Jesus. Yes. I listen to the trumpet of oh, Jesus. Oh, yeah, this one. How the world hears a different sound. If I had made the Jesus music, it would have been four hours on this song. This song. And I said, <laughs> and a bunch of other repeat. stuff happened. It didn't really matter. And nothing and really then matched revolution. this. Yeah. <laughs> Trumpet of Jesus, revolution. We're out of here. All right. We'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye. That was a HeadGum Podcast.